Why don't you kick us off with a read? So, so I published this essay in the New York Times on April of 2020 when the COVID-19 pandemic um, was raging in the U.S. and when the lockdowns just uh, started. It is a conversation between my mother and I. My mother lives in, in China. And so 11 years ago, when I was preparing to leave China, my mother impelled me to do two things, get baptized and join the Chinese Communist Party. She was petrified at the thought of me alone in a foreign country. She wanted me to carry the memberships like talismans so that the most two powerful entities in the world and the next would bless my journey. I fulfilled neither of her wishes. I am not a communist and I do not believe in God. I am a scientist and a writer. It is the responsibility of my vocations to ask the questions obscured by simplified answers. But what happens when the questions I ask can never be answered? When a puzzle has no solution? When every option is wrong? It is now the beginning of April, and the United States has the most reported cases of COVID-19 in the world. On the first day that the people of Illinois were put under a shelter-in-place order, when the clock struck 7 p.m., thousands of Chicago residents walked to their balconies to sing Bon Jovi's Living on a Prayer. As dusk sets over the city I call home today, it is a new morning for my mother in China. I can picture her standing in our old kitchen her grain hair tied up in a messy bun. She adds up nuts and dried fruits to her congee. She reads the news from state media. The kettle chirps on the stove. She fills two thermal flasks with hot water and looks out of the window. She thanks God for her meal and asks him to look after her only child. My inbox will soon light up again with messages from my mother. She will continue to write while I sleep. I imagine a tunnel opening up through the planet where our thoughts meet. Yang Yangchong was born and raised in Hefei, received a PhD in physics from the University of Chicago, and has worked at the Large Hadron Collider. She's currently a fellow at the Yale Law School. I won't burden her by saying she's the voice of a generation, but she's at the very least a voice of a generation, having written over the past few years shockingly beautiful and incisive series of, uh, series of essays. She's one of the most thoughtful observers of the human tensions at the core of the U.S.-China relationship and should have had a book deal yesterday. Co-hosting today is Alex Liang, a senior at Yale. Yang Yang, thank you so much for coming on China Talk. Thank you so much, Jordan, and many thanks to Alex as well. I, I don't want to do your entire backstory because I think you've captured it in your essays far better than I ever could through a series of questions. But I am very curious to learn about your most recent professional decision to take a break from, from teaching and quirks and neutrons and go hang out at New Heaven to write about stuff. What prompted you to, make, to take that decision and uh, how's it been going so far? I'll answer it this way that, um, first of all, it was not like an, an impulsive decision. Yeah, and I've written and talked about this that had I grown up in a free society, I probably would not have become a physicist. As a young child, I was interested in a lot of things, but I realized at a very early age that because of the political um, conditions in China, the physical sciences among my interests was the only profession I could pursue without compromise. And I've uh, really enjoyed my career in, in physics, and, and I still do love the profession deeply. But as I've also told my PhD advisor several years ago when I was about to graduate, that I've always viewed my physics career as that of a professional athlete. I wanted, um, I, I love the profession. I wanted to be the best I can while I'm still in the field, but I do not see it necessarily as a lifelong one, that I would at some point that I would leave the immediacy of it and then do something else. However, like being an athlete, once an athlete, always an athlete, it shapes your body and also it shapes your mind. It shapes the way you move through the world and interact with things and think about things. And I think that is how being a physicist is still one of the core components of my identity. And I think my, on uh, the career transition, it's, so it's a long time coming, but I think on uh, also the last year with a uh, COVID-19 pandemic, one, one, one year in isolation also helped clarify a lot of things that I felt it was the right time to make this transition. It was not out of any like opportunistic calculations and it was probably like a really, really hard time to make this transition. And I'm really grateful to Yale for this opportunity. But I think it's like the political conditions in my birth country and my adopted home, U.S.-China relations, 
and also just on global conditions in general that touch intimately on identity, on borders, on the use of science and technology and its relationship with the state. But I feel it's something urgent and it's something that demands my full attention and energy. And so that's why I made this transition. Going from a sort of having physics to, uh, let's not say distract you, but maybe like take your mind off, put perspective on these sort of issues in the U.S.-China relationship. What is it, has the relationship to these issues for you changed at all now that you've had, you know, 12 hours in a day to sort of think and meditate and, and research on these sorts of questions? Yeah, that is a really, really good question. And it's something that <laughs> that I feel quite um, quite intimately this year that before physics, especially that as uh, trained as an experimental particle physicist, I study the most fundamental uh, questions about about nature, about the origins and evolutions of the universe. And and I think here I, I should point out that science as a human endeavor and as a primarily government funded human endeavor is inherently political. So I do not want to paint this picture as if because I was trained in particle physics, that my, my former profession was apolitical or somehow beyond and above politics. However, there is something like in the immediacy of the, of the questions I was asking, there is still like some kind of like an oasis or refuge that, that I can uh, tuck myself away into for a bit and away from the, the more pressing issues that intimately touch on my body, on my being. Um, however, I think I, I was aware of what uh, my current profession would demand um, intellectually, emotionally, and I would say physically. And, and I still think it was the right choice. So Yang Yang, in one of your pieces, uh, there is a, a, a line that really struck me. It goes, uh, I was at dinner uh, with a friend and she asked about my work. Quote, uh, name one thing you wish Americans do about China. And you said uh, that Chinese people are people. This is pretty um, striking. Can you like elaborate on that? Yeah, so uh, so I just published this essay in The Guardian. And I think it is, and it's something that is really interesting after I published it. And uh, one of my colleagues uh, messaged me to say that he heard almost the exact same exchange, almost word for word, on, on NPR. Uh, when it was um, discussing uh, Haiti and Haitian refugees. And so I think there are, uh, there are multiple dimensions to this. I think later on in our conversation, we will touch more on U.S.-China relations and the more specifics uh, about, about China and Chinese people and how this, uh, how this place or how this ethnicity on the community are being viewed. Uh, but here I would like to say that this is a really, it's something that that, that is beyond the immediacy of, of U.S.-China relations or great power rivalry. Um, and, and being able to see it's something that actually is more about how one understands the self. Does one need to somehow constrain the other and to be able to draw this kind of a boundary in order to be able to understand oneself? And, and I think this is something... That is almost one of the most urgent questions in the world today. And, and I refer to, for example, the philosopher Judith Butler when she writes about frames of war. And a war is such a mandatory binary that demands dehumanizing the other. And, and so she asks these questions of when is a life, when is a loss, what makes for a grievable life. So I think the able to think about Chinese people as people, think about Haitians as people, is really about thinking about how all lives have value and have equal amount of humanity and be able to see that they are equally grievable in this world. Yang Yang, was there a process of you um, learning to think of Americans as people? I think there are two layers to this. The first is in a national frame that I... I think when I became aware of Americans when I was very young, I don't think that they were foreigners, but I, I didn't feel that they, uh, they abided to any character. Like if, if I just didn't know enough about them, then I just didn't know, but I didn't really have any um, preconditioned stereotypes. I think for uh, my parents' generation, maybe because they were influenced by the Korean War, and, and the rhetorics of that era would probably have a, 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 um, a, had a stronger 
uh, probably a negative feeling towards Americans. And I know that here uh, now with the deteriorating U.S.-China relations and with Chinese government becoming more authoritarian and in Chinese society becoming more nationalistic, there is also an increasing tendency to paint this demonized character of, of foreigners and Americans in particular. Um, so, so this is uh, on, a, on a national framework. But I think only another layer of the framework is really a racialized framework. And I think that is very important. And, and I wish it had uh, come out more in both in the limited space of this piece and in the discussions around this piece as well. Is that, um, is it, <laughs> I think James Baldwin has written about this, of how um, just like as an American, but as a Black American, how Black people know much more about white people than white people know about Black people. And so this is something about like being, um, being in the center and being used to being in the center and uh, taking one's own experience as the norm and assuming that one's own worldview is universal. And, and that is something that is related to privilege and to relations of power. And if we relate that to China, people and Chinese society are also not immune to racism, ethnic hierarchies, and xenophobia. And as a Han Chinese woman, I also need to examine this analogy of how in China, I never questioned my Chineseness because I'm, I'm Han and, and, and how when we are seeing these um, oppressions and crackdowns on, on ethnic minorities, in particular on the, the Uyghur population, and, and as well as the Tibetans, and, and also to an extent to, uh, to Hong Kong that can be analyzed through this lens as well, is to how to think about one's, um, these social constructs, one's racialized identity. What place in this power hierarchy does one's identity uh, lie and what, what that means in terms of one's relationship to the self and to the others? What advice do you have for folks who, you know, want to work towards accepting Chinese people as people like are there novels you recommend? Um, uh, you know, how does how does one go down the path of like being as sort of thoughtful and open as uh, uh, one Yang Yang? I might answer it this way as a flipping this question, right? What does one gain by imagining others, other people as less than people? What is needed in this process, right? And so I, th I think that is the more important thing. Why is this racial construct and this racial hierarchy necessary? Whose interest does it serve? Does it serve the development of, of capitalism, as like Cedric Robinson wrote about how the, how, uh, the, the development of capitalism in Europe, Europe was tied with these racialized identities? And, and does it contribute to a national project? And, and as I mentioned earlier about being, I'm, I'm Han Chinese and and how the Chinese government is increasingly trying to mandate this a singular way, the singular politically correct way to be Chinese. So I think I think these are, are the are the questions that are uh, that are more important to ask. That of course it is very important for an individual to examine one's own biases, but race and structural racism is not an merely about individual sentiments. It's really about structures and relations of power. And so that, that is the, the more fundamental question that, that we need to ask. And if there are indeed unjust structures of power that are upholding these racialized hierarchies, then it's these structures of power that we need to contest. Which is a big burden for a postdoc at, at Yale Law School, is it not? <laughs> but it's not an individual burden, right? It is, it, it is, it, it is the, it is a responsibility as an individual and, and also a responsibility as an intellectual. And so um, I, I do, I do not, I do not want to, to say anything self-aggrandizing as if I'm like singularly taking on this. And I hope that I'm not making this impression. Actually, like I am a student of this, that I learned a lot from generations of scholars, activists, writers, artists who have been in the trenches or on, among the bookshelves who have produced these records 
these scholarships and as well as a lot of these lessons that that I myself am trying to learn from. And and of course, historical lessons do not contain ready-made answers for the future. And what kind of answers um, and what kind of map we chart for the future is the responsibility of of now, of people of this generation. You, you have this beautiful line in, in one of your essays. The language I speak, standard Mandarin, is as old as Chinese civilizations and as young as the modern Chinese state, which, you know, is a stands in for a just a broader um, feeling, which 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 you and I probably both have when you see China um, referred to in political discourse uh as as such a sort of you know distilled down simplistic one-dimensional thing entity at where like you know all the people in the culture and the history are just reduced to you know whatever uh whatever ex-politician think tanker um decides is is the sort of meaning of it um what what is to be done how does that make you feel um, is there any answer? Is there something inevitable about um, the way uh, you, you know this this sort of treatment of uh, of China in the in the popular discourse nowadays in the West? Mm. Yeah, it's a it's a great question, and and it's an it's an it's an urgent one with with a lot of stakes, right? And and I think okay, so so I'll answer this in on. From, from two aspects. The first with regards to how, uh, quote-unquote, the West imagines China. And, and I think that's interesting because the West is an imperfect um, phrase, um, but I actually sometimes use it deliberately because um, I would quote the, the, the Caribbean philosopher Eduardo Glissant, who said that, like, right, the West is not in the West. It's a project, not the place. So, so the West, the very creation of the West is it is aligned with 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 state interests with capital interests with imperial interests and and, and with power structures and so in a lot of cases uh, it actually becomes an interesting and and useful um, entity to to, um, to talk about uh, on the other hand um so w- what is china and and this is where coming to the second on uh, my second point and as you quoted this line that I, I wrote about on also in The Guardian earlier this year about whether or not one needs to speak Chinese to to know China. And, and I think language, right, l- language is not a, a neutral thing. And language is a, a tool of power and it contains history. It has context. And, and the Chinese language through its, uh, and really it's not Chinese language, but Chinese languages, and um, through, through history and, and in its modern form, are all closely aligned with with, with nation building, with projects of the state, and and with power. And so, and it's a, it's an it's an evolving thing. It's not something that is set in place. And and the identities associated with it are also fluid. And so, I think there is so much richness in this. And um, just from Chinese languages or Sinitic and non-Sinitic languages spoken in the um, region that we know as as China today, and and from that, uh, if if we just flatten all of those into a geopolitical concept, which benefits a lot of Western state interests, but also to a great extent benefits the Chinese state interest, is really a great loss. Uh, not just for Chinese people or Chinese culture, but for humanity and 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 for uh, and and for history. And so I think it is for myself. I I was born and raised in China. I am a Chinese citizen. Um, but I regard my Chinese identity as that of a cultural and linguistic belonging. It is not something that is dictated by the state. And in a lot of my writings, I'm also trying to contest that, to wrestle and to reclaim my Chinese identity away from the very narrow, one-dimensional, flattened uh, concepts created by the state, whether or not that is the Chinese government or the U.S. government or some other geopolitical powers. 
you know, I, I just want to pause here and reflect on the fact that you've now referenced like four social thinkers, political philosophers, which are pretty deep cuts. Um, and I just want to know how you pick which books to read. Um, it seems like there are, you know, many sort of, or well, let's just stop there. Um, uh, Yang, how do you pick which books to read? Oh, I, I, I don't know. I always feel like I always, always feel illiterate. Uh, <laughs> because of course, like, like I was, I was born and raised in China and, and then I didn't speak English until, um, adolescence. And then also when I was growing up, actually my family banned extracurricular reading. Uh, my mother in particular, because she felt that it's necessary that I spend all um, awake hours focused on schoolwork. And and it's also like something that I try to rebel against. And But I also understand that that is something that, that was something she did out of actual like love. But she believed and she knew and I also understood that the only path for an individual advancement coming from uh, my, my background is through academic excellence. And so I think I... Uh, <laughs> I've tried to read more since I moved to the U.S., um, but it's always a, a work in progress. And and I think in terms of the books I read now, they're they're more related. Um, okay, so I'm going to quote James Baldwin again when he said that when you think you'll, um, I will paraphrase it slightly, that when you think you, your pain and suffering are unique in the world and then you read. And so I think a lot of times when I read is that I have questions, but I, I don't. I don't think I'm like that I am an individual, but, but I'm not that unique of an individual. These are questions that concern more than me and it's concerned more than this place and time. And so I try to, um, to go to other, uh, other thinkers and other writers or, or activists at, at different times and places and see, and, and their experiences, of course, are not entirely the same as mine, but, but this is where these comparisons, analogies, and um, uh, become necessary and become um, be- become infor- informative, and, and and so so yeah. Um, I, I I think I think it's <laughs> I'm always always uh, feeling this this urgency that there is so much to read and to learn. So I don't I don't consider myself well read at all. It is notable that you know the the the, the sort of five thinkers that have come to the top of your head from my random list of questions have all been Western um, or I, I'm sorry, have all been not have all been non-Chinese. I'm curious, like, do you find, you know, 20th and 21st century uh, of thinking in Mandarin to be less interesting or what, what has drawn to you to, to um, it, it seems spend most of your time reading foreigners. Um. <laughs> This is uh, this is a great question. Well, <laughs> I think the first is just just because of language that we are speaking English, and so 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 the English uh, and the English language writers are are the first that that come uh, come to mind. But the second part, I think, as I mentioned earlier as well, right? Like language is not politically neutral; it's it's a tool of power. And so I, I do read uh, more in the English language um, now. Then I do read Chinese, or um, or I read Chinese probably um, less of the contemporary day, probably of earlier days, and and more on um, poetry or literature. Or um, but but I, I think because uh, a lot of the questions that we are discussing now relates to how the West views China, or um, or, or with regards to U.S. China relations. Right? So this is about, um, and so so a lot of my my answers or or my thinking that I I look at how other uh, non-white entities, whether it's um, black people here in the U.S. or other um, uh, decolonial and anti-colonial struggles around the world, contest this. Uh, contest whiteness, contest Western hegemony. And so I think that that is probably why that um, these writers and thinkers have been brought up more in, in the context of this conversation. That, as I also mentioned, they do not come from the same background as I do. And and their struggles and their um, their thinking, uh, their lessons are very informative to me. But th- but what they did, and also like their their t- accomplishments as well as regrets and at times failures or mistakes, um, they they do not contain ready made answers. 
but they, they provide a historical perspective and as well as a theoretical framework that I find uh, useful in my thinking. I'm pretty sure Yale Law School doesn't make you teach right now, but if they did, what are some uh, course ideas and who would you want to put on the syllabus? And, and are there any interesting Chinese and uh, non-Chinese thinkers you would want to pair for any courses, for any class sessions? Interesting. Um, so <laughs> not to make this too long an answer, but I think like one course that I've actually um, w- um, wanted to teach if I were given um, the opportunity, and it is, and this is something that I would <laughs> relate more, more to China is that, um, there can be an interesting course on examining the relationship between science and scientists vis-a-vis the Chinese state across Chinese history over millennia from the early imperial times to the very present day. And, 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 and in this process, there are also comparative things that can be, can be done. For example, um, early Chinese science um, and scientists compared with early Greek science and scientists of the similar era and later, and, and later on. And, and also like um, because science and, and, and technology in China has never been an insular affair like through, through history, um, but how it is being used and and how much it is um, uh, indigenous versus uh, an import is very much also related with the political and socioeconomic conditions of the time. And, and I think that would be actually an, an interesting like seminar course on segmented into different times and then to the present day into different disciplines. So, so there is an idea there. And then in that, we can also read a lot of Chinese uh, thinkers from even like earlier eras, writing about astronomy and its relationship, pre-modern astronomy in relation with the state, the body, the state, and the cosmos as reflections of each other, up to, let's say, the 19th century during the self-strengthening movement, how some of the writers and also politicians are thinking about uh, the role of Western technology, in particular military technology, uh, for um for self-strengthening and then later for, for national salvation. And, and then, and then to, to the present day, there are, there is also a lot of, um, primary sources, Chinese language sources, as well as English language sources that we can read through this. Sign me up. Um, (laughs) uh, here's a, so, so this is a good transition, um, you know, to talk about some of the, some of the tensions, um, in in the U.S. China scientific relationship, which have really come to the fore over the past few um, uh, over the past few years, for sure. Uh, yeah, as a particle physicist and uh, as researching fundamental science, uh, how have you seen this relationship, um, this U.S. China increasing tensions? How have you seen that affect like the fundamental sciences as a particle physicist yourself? So I'm uh, sorry. I think uh, you're referring to tensions as in. On what specific tensions? How there's like concerns about civil rights when the DOJ has this China initiative that they announced in 2018. Uh, there's also concerns about like from a, a House Oversight Committee launching an investigation and calling what's going on in fundamental science a kind of a, a new red scare. What do you have any takes on this? So I myself, I'm not particularly comfortable with the terminology "new red scare," and then I actually think this on uh, this terminology. I, I can understand why um, people who genuinely care about about civil rights uh, may may uh, and, and are concerned about this uh, scrutiny of uh, uh, Chinese scientists in the U.S. Or, or just scientists in the U.S. with uh, collaborations or different kinds of relations with Chinese organizations or individuals placing this extra scrutiny and then at some point with with rather um, compelling evidence of of racial profiling. And then use this term red scare to alert the, the American public to an earlier era. I can see how that may be unhelpful. And, but I, I really don't think it is a particularly um, precise term and it may mislead more. Like during like the, the, the red scare, what is red? Red, red is referring to, to communism. And, <laughs> and that during the red scare, it was, a, uh, the, the, the tension was about, about ideology and, and the Cold War was on uh, the Soviet Union, then those very different, um, just socioeconomically, politically, and also in terms of its ideological agendas, very different from, from China today. And it, uh, and, and the, 
uh, conditions of the world was also very different when, when the Soviet Union was largely by its own design closed off uh, to, to, the, to the rest, uh, to the rest of the, um, to the West. And then the Red Scare itself was also, it's not particularly technology focused, although this was about peop just people with, with, um, with, with communist, with political um, beliefs that are on the left and, and artists and writers and actors and, and, and also labor organizers and, 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 and civil rights activists. And so, so, so that was, uh, that was the context of that. And, and so the, both in terms of the, the, the other quote unquote, the adversary or the enemy is different. China is nominally communist, but it's not. It, it is very much integrated and important player in the global capitalist system. And the Chinese government run by an ostensibly Chinese Communist Party is actually a major player in global capitalism and trying to crack down on uh, socialist on um, labor organizing and, and other uh, forms of, um, of of grassroots struggles inside China and uh, and uh, as well and and so the red part is is misleading and and it and and I think it is actually uh, quite um, problematic that it it paints like now a country becomes red what does it mean and then the scare part right what is the U.S. afraid of. Now, like, the, 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 the fear is not that uh, people in the U.S. are becoming communists because, well, China, <laughs> Chinese society is not communist either. And the primary ideology uh, that underlies the, the Chinese government's uh, legitimacy is nationalism. And it's something that, that, that it's not something the Chinese government is trying to export. It's not people in, in the U.S. are becoming nationalists towards China. But by framing this into a great power struggle as a national rivalry, it's flaming nativist, nationalistic, xenophobic sentiments here in the U.S. And so I think like this uh, new Red Scare, though I, though I can see why some uh, people who use it are well-intentioned, but I do think that is actually uh, quite problematic and do not capture what is the current um, situation, which is about about state power and 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 state rivalry, and how science and technology are being seen as these tools of state power, and by both governments and and scientists being regarded as these assets in geopolitics. And then the second part, so coming to science and 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 fundamental research, I think this is also important to uh, to view this as not something that is limited in place or time. Um, if you say how, um, or you might, I worked on the Large Hadron Collider for um, 11 and a half years, and, and it's a large international collaboration. The, the, the collider itself is located in Europe and literally on the French-Swiss border. And, and it's a, it's, the collaboration has dozens of countries, hundreds of institutes, and thousands of scientists from across the world. Though if we actually look at the number of institutes with their national affiliation, we could also see this disparity that it's predominantly um, countries and institutes located in uh, West, Western Europe and in, in North America. Um, on, the other, um, uh, uh, on the other hand, because it is such a large international collaboration and, 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 and the particle physics, I think it's partic in particular, so it becomes a good example, like what racial uh, sentiments, racist sentiments, xenophobic sentiments are inflamed in the U.S. It would have a negative impact. And that is primary first and foremost, because scientists are also people. And, and, and have multiple layered identities in addition to being a scientist. And so, for example, the, um, the Trump administration's Muslim ban had a very direct impact on, 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 on science, science and scientists, including on, on, on many of my colleagues who come from majority Muslim countries, whether or not it is explicitly on that banned list. And so I think, um, and, and of course, the U.S.-China tensions on uh, have have a, have a have an impact on, on fundamental sciences. It's um in, in fields that are on um, like in, in my in my in my field of, of particle physics because it is fundamental research with no applicable value. It it may not be as acute with other applied fields or or on all these disciplines that are regarded as um as a sensitive or related with national security, but it's also, it's all related. And I think the important thing here is 
um, to be able to place this current tension into a broader context and, and, and tease out the different strands, which are, which are nationalistic and informed by great power rivalry, which are racist and, and, and are, are not uh, directly tied, though it overlaps with, with geopolitics and, and which are, are, are broader that really transcends national, uh, racial or, uh, political boundaries and are about fundamental questions of what kind of science is being done. What are the social costs? Who benefits from this work? Who funds this work? And what are the civic duties of a scientist? Is that limited to a once the government of one's birth country, the government of the uh, the country one works in, or is there some um, broader egalitarian value that, as a science, global scientific community, we should strive for? Yangyang, I want to take a little detour into the Large Hadron Collider. Well, maybe not into it, but um, first a story and then a question. So for whatever random reason, I was in Geneva the day they announced that they found the Higgs boson and had the chance to party with all of those physicists that night. Uh, A few of my friends were interns there, and it was just like the most incredible moment of all these people from all around the world just like being really happy and you know, th- I think there is like there's some vision baked into the Large Hadron Collider and those sorts of like international scientific projects, which is really antithetical to a lot of the discourse, both in the U.S. and in China, when it comes to the purpose of science and like the reason that nations put money in, into these sorts of, of projects. You know, in the in in China, it's all about sort of self-reliance and making China great again. In the U.S., it's it, you know, we have this rhetoric around, um, you know, internet you know, competitiveness and 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 um, but 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 at the same time, there, there's something like, I guess, as an outside observer, something just like something really pure and beautiful about humanity. The fact that like the world got together and built the Large Hadron Collider. Um, am I missing something? Like, is there something special in there um, in, in that community? What, what's your take from the um, from the inside? And, you know, if you were going to pause and, and, and spend two years writing about the all, all the themes that came out of um, uh, your experience in, in that community, what, what are some of the threads you'd like to unspurl? Hmm. <laughs> It's such a great question. It's such a lovely, lovely story. I, when, when, when Higgs boson discovery was discovered, actually it was, it was not July 4th. Yes, <laughs> it, it was not July. And that's why we had something planned. But we're like, oh, we can't oh. have hamburgers because that's too like imperialist. We should, you know, have like some world food. And uh, and I was uh, was a very, very new grad student at at, uh, University of Chicago at the time. But I also did like wake up at, I don't know, 3 a.m. to watch the live stream. And uh <laughs> And, and I think, okay, so, so this is a great question. I think I, I, I think we should, um, should acknowledge the, the ideals and also, uh, point out, um, the constraints of reality and also with, with some reference to the his, to the history, right? Like CERN was founded in the, in the mid 1950s. Um, in CERN is the European Center for Nuclear Research, uh, which is where the, the Large Hadron Collider is located. And, and it was founded as a fundamental scientific research center, but it, it also had a very explicit, from its founding, a very explicit a geopolitical goal. But this was very much like, um, aligned with the context of politics on the European continent shortly after World War II. This is a continent that had been ravaged by war. And then also nations and individual, uh, national governments and individuals on came together and thought like if there will be a fundamental scientific project that can help um, unite to to some extent uh, these countries that have been <laughs> trying to decimate each other for so long. And and so the, the, the choice to build it literally on, on the border uh, at the Swiss-French border is a reflection of that. And and so, uh, so it does have a cosmopolitan ideal, and as uh, as you mentioned, as mentioned, I, I, I myself mentioned, right? It is a large international collaboration with dozens of member uh, uh, countries at, at hundreds of institutions from around the world, and and I think that was one of the things that really drew me to particle physics when I was still an undergraduate student in China. Partly was I was really curious about these fundamental questions about nature. Partly I was amazed by the majestic instrumentation, and I've always been uh, 
interested and I do work, work, worked a lot on, on hardware side of it. And then uh, finally, there is also the, the aspect that I was intrigued by the nature of the collaboration. How can people from such diverse backgrounds and uh, nationalities and, and a lot of these countries are not very friendly <laughs> with each other on for, for a very long time and also in the present sense can work together on something that is um, beyond immediate utilitarian purposes. And I think I think these are are are, are um, is an inspirational example. But then where I would come to the pragmatic part of it is that I do not want to um, make the impression that somehow sun is the ideal, that it is perfect. It is very much not, as I mentioned earlier, that of course it is an experiment located in Europe. And, and this partly is not like a, as an individual's fault of, of, of a cell management or anybody, but this is a result of, of global geopolitics and these power structures, right? Not all passports are created equal. And so if it's a large international collaboration, how do people travel? And, um, and also it's related with the state of socioeconomic development, with the state of an uh, educational and scientific infrastructure in one's native country. And so right now, like it's still as uh, sun, it's um the, the collaboration is still very much like a um, <laughs> a, a white male uh, majority, and it's an a Europe and North America dominated um, project. And particle physics in general is such an is such a profession, and that is um, probably also not so different from a lot of other branches of of physics. And so how, um, how do we democratize a, prof a scientific profession on a global scale? That is a very important, uh, important question. And that uh, is a responsibility of the scientific community, of the political uh, policymakers, and also just of civil society and, society and, 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 and the public in general. And also like just even at Sun itself in Europe, like a very immediate example for uh, because the, the experiment is built on the border. There are many of my colleagues that may live in, in France because the rent is cheaper because the French countryside, but they may have their um, uh, civil services like their, their uh, doctors and um, on whatever shopping and they do it on, on the Swiss side. And then with the COVID pandemic, when uh, <laughs> Switzerland and, and France began to enforce this border and then it create, uh, created actually very... Uh, uh, <laughs> significant problems. And so, so this is, um, this is a, an example of how just like when we are still living in a world that is segmented by, by borders and, and nations have the ability to, um, to, to enforce it, uh, for various reasons. For, for pandemic control, it can be a valid reason, but one also needs to understand that a national border is not a magical boundary. It is not the most optimized boundary for, <laughs> for, for containing a pandemic. It's simply because it is the boundary that is aligned with organized state power. So that is the boundary that is most easily and, and, and most stringently and first enforced. And so also these are all realities we have to contend with. And, and I know I've given a really long answer to this question, but I also wanted to point out on one thing that I, I think it's still um, a lesson that we can reflect on today is that during the Cold War, we mentioned earlier how <laughs> Red Scare um, described a very particular thing of a particular era. Um, during, during the actual Cold War, when, when the Soviet Union was largely by its own design closed off to the West, and there were um, scientists at CERN first, and then particle physicists at Sun, and later also particle physicists at Fermi National Accelerator Laboratory in here in the U.S. and it's located just outside of Chicago, and 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 a lot of these particle physicists um, did and leverage their um, their institutional prestige and uh, leverage their political connections and lobbied their national governments and created these channels for Soviet scientists to come uh, work at CERN um, first and then uh, later also um, in, uh, in the U.S. At, at Fermilab, at the National Laboratory, to collaborate on fundamental research. And, and that was a time because of the Soviet Union's own design that the, the Soviet scientists cannot travel freely and they would travel with their, <laughs> their, their government minders. And, and, and that was, that, that was an, it was a, that carried a degree of security risk, but that risk was, was weighed 
um, against the benefits. And it was also a time when the world was on the verge of nuclear war. And actually, like having these kinds of conversations open between U.S. Uh, nuclear and particle uh, scientists and, uh, and, 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 and Soviet scientists and understanding what uh, each other is doing and, and was actually constructive to peace. And so I think that was an important uh, lesson that, uh, that, that uh, has particular relevance today as well. Do you think on that, it, it, it's interesting because, you know, you saw these scientific collaborations, you saw, you know, the U.S. and Soviet Union cooperating on space-related stuff, uh, getting, into the, getting into the 70s and 80s. That, the impetus to use science as a bridge, you don't see a lot in 2021. Um, even though, you know, as you just mentioned, like the world seemed a lot scarier and like the risk of nuclear war was probably higher back then than it is today. Is there something about, you know, the, the way the world looks between the U.S. and China where, you know, no one is really that scared of some ex existential crisis that um, you don't see um, anyone advocating science to be used as a as as this sort of bridge? I'm, I'm hesitant to, to paint it this way because the world was certainly much more divided then. <laughs> and then again, like I said, the primary reason was because of the nature of the, the Soviet Union and also like oh, well, China then as well. It was <laughs> the Mao government's own policies that didn't forbade Chinese uh, nationals to travel overseas. And so, so I, I think at a time when the world was structurally divided, and there were some of these channels uh, that um, by, by some very um, brave and, and uh, motivated individuals that were pushing it open. I, I don't, I mean, the world is not um, like that today, right? There are, is a lot more integrated and, and uh, in terms of science and technology, education and commerce in, in particular. And I also think it is very important if we look, at, look back at, at, um, at that era, um, and immediately at, after World War II or at, and during the Cold War, right? And if we think about an Operation Paperclip, where the, the U.S. government recruited large numbers of former Nazi scientists to, to the U.S. And the operation was called Paperclip because there were people who were, uh, who, who were members of the Nazi party and had a fault for <laughs> For Germany, not not necessarily in the trenches, but like contributed to that effort and would not pass immigration scrutiny. But they were scientists or engineers and had these particular skills that the U.S. found helpful in its Cold War with the Soviet Union. And so they would, uh, U.S. officials would put a paperclip on their immigration files to 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 mark these individuals to 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 help them pass through these security screenings. And 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 of course, most notably, it was. Um, Werner uh, von Braun, who, uh, of course, was uh, instrumental in the U.S. later space program. And so I think this is um, the, the issue of, um, of, of nations and, uh, and, and national governments trying to um, appropriate science and use that as a tool of state power is something that is really not new. And, and, and I think, I, and I think the, um, it is, it is and it is always inherently dangerous. And what I do worry now is that with this, with this kind of rhetoric, um, that both the United States and China, the governments, uh, and, and a lot of the, the public rhetoric as well are, are really sound quite, quite similar. There are linguistics, uh, styles that are a bit uh, different, but they really sound quite similar in terms of, uh, national competition, national power and science and technology for, uh, for national leadership and um, whatever. And, and, that, and that is, um, I can understand how like politicians may say that because of the constraints of their role. But it's something that I do think civil society, academia, so the scientific community have an obligation to reflect on and, 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 and at times to push back against. And it is a very dangerous um, mindset to think that the problem is not bombs, but whose bomb. And that comes back to what I mentioned at the very beginning, right? When, uh, when Judith Butler posed this question, what makes a life, what makes a loss, what makes for a grievable life? Bombs and weapons that would kill people. And if the people are equally grievable and possess as much humanity, 
Then that if we come from that starting point and then use that to evaluate how science and technology are being used and how scientists conduct that and um, their work, I think that that is a a a, a much much more uh, responsible uh, standpoint. And otherwise, if we cling to a national framework, then it is inherently exclusionary. And at the end of the day, logically inconsistent and intellectually dishonest. Going back to uh, the rhetoric that we use, the terminology that we use, um, you, we were talking about the new Red Scare and you kind of broke down each word of, of new Red Scare uh, that you took issue with. Are there other words in the discourse that you have issues with or, or terminology that we use? And I'm thinking here more specifically, like you meant like chilling effect or brain drain. Just, or, yeah. and, and the flip side too, Yang Yang, do you... Are there any phrases in the contemporary discourse about U.S. and China and technology that you think are uh, are apt in any way? Yeah, so so I, I know that uh, again, like I, I would acknowledge that a lot of people who use these uh, words come from positions of good intentions that they are alarmed by this heightened scrutiny and a uh, 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 with a racialized taint, and I want to push back against it. And and then at times, on um, they may also resort to. A ready-made language or language they assume would be most persuasive to policymakers on, let's say, here in the U.S. And but I think I just like as an academic and also as a writer, like language is is important and, and it, a language can enforce biases. But then language used in, in in a better way can also contest these structures of power. So let's say chilling effect. I would say like these. Um, a lot of people say these heightened scrutinies and the China Initiative, these prosecutions and other forms of and uh, restrictions uh, have a chilling effect on uh, scientific uh, collaborations and scientific activities in the U.S. I think that it's not like it isn't factually probably correct, um, but it, it gets to the point is if, if a chilling effect is bad, the inherent assumption is that uh, the hotter, the better. Um, but that is not true, right? <laughs> it's not that more science is better or always better. And it's um, a lot of work that uh, it's not that it's, not not just uh, quantitatively more that is but that is just always welcome is and and this so this is where like the competition narrative is dangerous because a competition would assume there is two sides it would enforce a boundary and it will also um impose certain metrics and um, which almost always falls down to some kind of a quantitative measurement and um, but but that is a, a, a rather actually um, irresponsible mindset, especially in terms of developing science and technology. When they, when there are serious ethical concerns, when there are issues with with safety, and with with the ways these uh, these new technologies m- may be used, uh, whether it is in um, in, in artificial intelligence or uh, some uh, in in biotechnology, and and these potential harms actually cannot be constrained by national borders. I think actually the COVID pandemic is a great example of this. That these inherent risks can and cannot be contained by national borders, and so. Um, and so, so it is really important to actually. Sometimes it's not just like science scientists who think, "Oh, we will do this because we can," <laughs> but but should you? And is it good? Who funds it? Who benefits from it? Who could potentially be harmed? These sort of questions that needs to be asked. And a lot of times, maybe slowing down is good, and not just good, but also necessary. And so, so this is where I think the chilling effect, even if it may be a nominally um, correct to um, to say, enforces a, um, a, a a potentially dangerous perception that the hotter the better. And then coming to brain drain, right? And I think this is a terminology that I really, really dislike to no end. And and I really, really, and it's also a really, really ugly term, just right. It just in terms of language, in terms of aesthetics, it's almost like a, a violent terminology that that is at, at at its core dehumanizing. Like I am not a brain; I'm a person. And uh, and and I think I think uh, I think there are there are two layers why a brain drain is problematic. The first related to what I um what we've discussed on earlier on up to this point. Right? And it, 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 it has this uh, connotation that somehow science and technology are instruments of state power and scientists are state assets 
are these assets in geopolitics. And so like a country would try to accumulate more as if like scientists are some form of, of like rare minerals. And then uh, the countries like the U.S. or China will compete to extract more and, and uh, create this create this form of hegemony over it. Th- that is a very, very parochial and indeed a very dangerous uh, mindset and and it's not a good thing for one country to to have a monopoly over any branch of science or any group of scientists it is actually diversity including geographical diversity are very important in the safe ethical responsible sustainable development of science and and the second layer on outside of science science and uh, and geopolitics is the, the terminology brain drain also enforces this idea of quote unquote a good immigrant. And that is, it, it again also enforces its national borders and give people, uh, assign people a value, a score of who is, whose body is desired and who is not and who by, by, by trading um, their, their, their degrees, their education, their skills, their labor, or, or even th- their stories can purchase this ticket across a border. And if we believe fundamentally that migration is a human right, it's not a privilege, then terminology like brain drain should be uh, fiercely resisted. Yang Yang, can you wash some of the ugliness of those phrases out with uh, a passage and close this episode with a reading as well? Yes. And since we were talking about uh, science and technology and the use of borders, I thought I would um, read a few paragraphs from an essay I wrote for the Bulletin of the Atomic Scientists for their 75th anniversary issue that was published last December. And the Bulletin of the Atomic Scientists, I should also mention, was founded by Manhattan Project scientists in the fall of 1945 when they were reckoning with the costs of their creation and on the critical relationships between science, scientists, and state power. The title of the essay is called The Edge of Our Existence. The coronavirus came from nature. It has no morals, no agenda or belief. Its presence among our species is a result of human activity. A reminder of our disruptive power and our ultimate vulnerability. No armies or weapons, material wealth or political borders can protect us from changes in the ecosystem. As we continue to expand our presence on Earth and exploit it for short-term gain, as more areas become uninhabitable due to flooding, drought or fires, as mounting glaciers and warming seas awaken ancient pathogens, What's happened in 2020 is only a prelude to much worse to come. The face of our planet is shifting. We are all becoming displaced. It starts at the margin. The most vulnerable are the first to feel its impact. The way we respond to their plight will determine our own fate. If we cling to old ideas of citizenship and creed, if we use the pretense of scarcity to justify our bigotry, If we let migrants drown at sea at refugees languish in camps, it won't be long until we realize that we too do not belong anywhere. If we are determined to shape our identity through the destruction of a collective other, we are only ensuring our mutual demise. The state of our humanity is not measured by the richest or the most powerful, nor can it be understood by listening only to those safely at the center. The border is not an edge, but a new beginning. The ones who have persevered in the periphery hold the key to our future survival. Their presence disrupts our comfort, challenges our norms, uncovers the paucity of our moral imagination. Their voices, the forcibly silenced and deliberately unheard, enrich our vocabulary at a time when the enormity of the truth puts us at a loss for words. The liberation of the most oppressed will necessitate the destruction of all systems of oppression. The empowerment of the most disenfranchised will empower us all. Yang and Alex, thank you so much for being a part of China Talk. I wish I knew how it would feel to be free. I wish I could break. All the chains holding me I wish I could say All the things that I should say 
Saying loud, ooh, saying clear For the whole round world to hear I wish I could share All the love that's in my heart Remove all the bars that keep us apart I wish you could know what it means to be me Then you'd see and agree that every man should be free Wish I could live like I 